as you are meeting with Christians all around the world. But Lord, we come together as your people gathered in your presence to worship you, to honor you, to love you, but God also to be impacted by you. So come now by your Holy Spirit and speak to us, we pray. Every single person here, God, we pray how they'll hear your voice and they'll know your call in their lives, whatever that might be. And we'll be drawn close again to the God of love and of grace and of joy and of goodness. And that we will find ourselves deeply blessed. So do your work now in us, we pray. Ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I realize that one of the things that happens as I speak regularly here is that you get to uh, learn some of the odd things about me. I, I, that might not be news to a lot of you. You might just say, yeah, okay, yeah, we get that, Chris. But one of the things that I tend to do, and I don't know whether anybody else thinks like this at all, but sometimes I wonder, what would, what would I be like if some of the things that are a significant part of my life just weren't there? Like, what would it be like, for example, if the Bible didn't exist? What would my life look like? What would it be, you know? Didn't have that book that God has given to speak his truth and his message of salvation, but so many other things healing into my life. Who would I be? I know I'd be very different. I don't know exactly. I don't have an answer to these questions. What would it be like if the church didn't exist? You know, that God kind of designed things. that We just kind of do our relationship with him one-on-one -on -one individually, and we never got together, and there wasn't this corporate reality and, you know, worship and service together and love for one another and care and a hard time. Like, if, what if there's no church at all? It's just my relationship with God and nothing else. That would be weird. Uh, and it would be, I would be different. It would be a different life. What if there was no worship service? Sunday by Sunday by Sunday where we gathered into God's presence. I came into the God's presence either as a participant or as, as someone who speaks and we engage in this God who is present to us and alive and who, yeah, does want to change us. Think, I think of the change that God has done in me just because of worship over my life. Who would I be without that if it never existed? It didn't exist. Well, I've asked the same question of myself of, uh, of the reality of Christmas. How would I be different if Christmas didn't exist? You know, I, I hate to say it, but I'm about to celebrate my 60th Christmas. Ooh. That's a lot of Christmases. Don't clap. It's not happiness. It's, uh, it's just reality. And I don't remember the first few, but I remember a lot of them since. And they've been really good. I have loved the presents and the parties and the family. Every single Christmas, I've been reminded about the reality of Jesus coming into this world. What, happened, what, would ha what would have happened in my life? Who would I be today if I hadn't over and over and over again been reminded that we have a God who loves us so much that he came to us as an, an infant in Bethlehem? And all the messages and all the truths and all the stories that surround that, I don't know, but I think I'd be different. And as I think about this Christmas season, um, I just hope that as I, as I introduce a theme for a little series that we've, we've got, that, that, that whatever happens this Christmas in your life will be significant, that you will be impacted and changed because God speaks, because God by his spirit does something in you that makes you a little bit more like him, opens your eyes to see and understand and be powerfully impacted by the reality of a 
child coming in a manger who was the living God. I am uh, going to address a question. I heard somebody else speak about this, and, and it kind of blew me away because it's so profound. It's simple, but I'm going to speak for three, three, well, yeah, three Sundays, including the Christmas Eve service, which is on the 23rd, on the question, why did Jesus come? I know you can answer that question kind of easily and flippantly. I don't want you to do that, and I don't want to do that over these Sundays. What was in the mind of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, when he chose to come here as an infant in a manger 2,000 years ago? You know, this one that Colossians says, the one who made, you know, all things were made by him. He was there an active at creation, the Bible says, and all things were made for him. Like, I mean, we are getting perspective on who Jesus is when we read those verses. The eternal, powerful Son of God, what was in his mind when he said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And what we are going to do is look at a bunch of places in the New Testament, and I'm not going to be preaching out of the Christmas story. I'm going to give reference to it. That's different. I'll grant you, this is a different series. But we're going to ask the question and hear from the authors of the Bible, hear from God himself about why Jesus came. Um, And I hope you get impacted by it. I hope this Christmas changes you. And I hope after this Christmas you're different than you were before. First one is, uh, that we're going to look at is from 1 John 3, 1 to 10. Now, um, we're all about getting our congregation to a deeper knowledge of the Bible, so I'm going to tell you why 1 John was written. It'll be brief, but you've got to know it if you're really going to understand what the, the, the passage says. I hope you always know that, right? 1 John was written by the Apostle John to his people, l- directly confronting and, and opposing something called Gnosticism. Who knows about Gnosticism? Some of you do. That's kind of cool. Gnosticism was an, a, kind of an, a, an expression of the faith that was a heresy. And I'll capture it really quickly. Gnosticism was all about the idea that the physical in life, you know, anything that had physicality was bad. You know, my stand here, my cell phone from which I read the Bible, etc. It was bad, all bad, but that the spirit was good. A couple of implications of that. Number one, what the Gnostics taught was that Jesus... Um, the Christ didn't really come in physical form because how could the Christ, God's son, come in physical form if physical, physicality was bad? Now, that has huge implications for the faith that I'm not going to describe to you right now, but it was just way off base, like way off base. Second implication, and this is where it has more relevance to us today, is that these people taught if you follow Jesus, what you did physically wasn't really all that important. You know, what you did with your body wasn't all that important. And the result was that people disregarded the law of God. The idea is that how we live is no part of the faith. And, and John comes along and he makes a profound statement. And essentially he's saying in the whole epistle, the whole letter of 1 John, he said, that's not so. That's just like craziness from a biblical point of view. And he's defining the faith over and over again. And he makes a statement at the end of this passage that really ought to blow us away. I'm going to tell you at, uh, at the beginning, and then we're going to read the passage together. He says at the end of the passage um, that, that in the end of the day, when you look at your life, you can figure out whether you are a child of God. Is that you? Or, this is the other option, child of the devil. That's pretty strong stuff, right? That's, that's a big deal. So, well, let me read to you First John 3, verses 1 to 10. See what John has to say. 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, listen to this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, and here it is, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And it's like, whoa. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you... (laughs) It's not actually of the the, the festive season, isn't it? But I want to tell you, there's something profound here. There's something really, really important for us to grasp today that I hope to to, to bring you to, to take you toward. And John's point is very simply, don't be fooled. In chapter 1, he says, don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself. Essentially, (laughs) that the reality is that we're one or the other, children of God or children of the devil, and by looking at your life, you can figure it out. Now, when he says about going on and sinning and so forth, he's talking not about whether we sin. I sin, you sin, everyone sins. It's just part of the human condition. What he's talking about is ongoing, persistent, um, consistent sin in life that becomes characteristic of who we are. You know? It's just there, and it's part of us. And what he describes that dynamic to be as he speaks into this reality in the lives of these people is that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, which is that kind of dynamic at work in a person's life. That's why he came. He says he came to destroy the work of the devil. Now, I know a lot of us don't like to sit around and think that we have that possibility at work in my life or in anybody's life, but hey, let's continue to go back to the Word of God and let the Word of God define our reality. What is the work of the devil? I want to take you for a few minutes to Genesis chapter 3 because it is there that the devil's work is displayed for us like nowhere else in the Bible. I want you to think about it. What work has the devil done that Jesus came to destroy? You know, before this encounter of Adam and Eve with evil, all was good. Many of you will know this. They had a great relationship with God. They had a great relationship with each other. You know, they had a great relationship with their environment. They, they had work that was meaningful, and they were contributing significantly to what God had created. And then comes this, Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Note the work of the devil as represented in, the, in, in the, the serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, what the devil did in that moment, number one, he sowed doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve, and then he lied to them. Um... He lied to them, and in, in, in that, in a sense, was his action, and what his work produced was sin in them. They did what was contrary to what God had told them to do. See, and, and in this instance, Adam and Eve took what God had said, and they outright rejected it. You know, it, it's like they came along into the presence of God and said, you know, I know what you have told me to do. I know what your commandments are, but somehow I'm not going to let them apply to my life right now. It's not going to make that difference in my life. You know, they set aside what God had told them to do. Somehow they believed that they were beyond or above it. It's like they looked in the face of God and said, I don't believe you, and I'm going to do what I want, not what you want. In that moment, as we've discussed in our story campaign, these human beings were changed. And in their heart of hearts, what emerged was what we've described and what the Bible describes as the sinful nature. From that point on, sinning became easy for them. Can you call it natural, normal? And from that moment on, they began to live their lives in rebellion against God, rejecting what God had said was true, rejecting God's authority in their lives. See, my friends, that is the work of the devil, influencing human beings to that point saying no to God. Two consequences. And they're obvious, obvious still, some of them in particular. Number one, <clears throat> the world became full of heartbreak and brokenness and pain. Started then, continues on today. Adam and Eve's relationship, which was filled with love and intimacy and closeness and joy, became characterized by strife and blame and brokenness. And while was now alive in people soon led to violence as one of their sons killed another. And in time, that was exemplified and war began to become normal on the face of the earth. And people were changed and instead of people being people of great generosity, they, we became people of greed, suffering and heartache and brokenness, poverty, all of these things, not what God produced in the first two chapters of Genesis, not the work of God in creating, but this was the work of the devil and what he produced. Second consequence, we see it in Adam and Eve, and I gotta tell you, we see it in ourselves. It's our reality as a human race still. These two people became separated from God, separated from him because of sin. Adam and Eve were escorted from the garden by God. You read later in the chapter, he literally walks them to the entrance to the garden and he says, off you go. You can't be with me anymore. He ushered them out of a relationship with him because of the reality of what they had become and the path that they had chosen. Since that day, my friends, the human race has been alienated from the God who created it 
and who loved it and who loves it still. From that day, the relationship was characterized, our relationship with God, by, by dynamics that were so contrary to the truth and of what God had for us. I'm going to read you a couple of verses. This doesn't get better for a minute. It'll get better. We'll get to the Christmas season, right? Let me read to you Colossians 1.21. Once you were alienated from God. Now, Paul's speaking to people who have come to faith in Jesus, and he's describing their life previously. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. What produces evil behavior? Well, it's the thinking which produces the way we choose to live. And God's, God's word says that in our natural state, before we come to know Christ and believe in him and have been made new by him, we are enemies in our minds toward God. Any, and don't put up your hand. Any enemies of God here? Now, that's the question that's kind of being posed to us. You know, the, the reality is that the, the, the way people are, the way they're literally born in this world and they need to be transformed because of Christ's coming is that they no longer understand the reality of God and they fight against him in their minds. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says this. The God of this age, speaking of the devil and his work, okay, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What is the work of the devil? He keeps people from seeing the truth of God. It's just not a possibility for them until somehow they encounter the reality of God's spirit at work within them so that when they think about God, they do not see that God is good and that God is an incredible God of love and that God is gracious and that God is merciful. They can't see it. They can't see that the law that God has given in his word is a good thing. They can't see their own condition, which is desperate. Because they're alienated from God, they can't see the reality of their need for God, and they certainly can't see the reality of a Jesus who has come to meet our need. Enemies of God in our minds. You see, the devil, Jesus says in John chapter 8, is the father of lies, and as he lied in Eden so long ago to Adam and Eve, he continues to lie to people today, and many, many people believe the work of the devil, and they can't see and understand the reality of who God is. As a result, they don't move toward God. They run away from him. They run hard away because that's the enemy and an enemy is one who hurts me. Second verse, Romans 8, verse 7. Listen to this. The mind governed by the flesh is, say the word with me, would you? Hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. And here again is this kind of absolute statement, nor can it do so. It is hostile to God. Now that's, I recognize a powerful word. The natural state of human beings is to live in an antagonism toward the living God, refusing to submit to God's law, seeing it somehow as a threat to their lives. And as a result, what happens is people, just like Adam and Eve, we rebel and we react against God and we run away from him and we live a life that is, life that is characterized by persistent and ongoing sin. You know, there's no good news without bad news coming first. And I just gave you the bad news. See, John is saying, and again, I'll be frank, in 1 John chapter 3, that those who live in this state that I've just described to you are the children of the devil. And that's serious business. But now I want to take you to the good news. And I want to read to you 
verse 1 and verse 5 of John chapter 3. Listen to this. And let's start thinking about what God has done in Christ for us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. I hope today some people's eyes will begin to get opened up so they see the reality of who God is and stop believing the lie. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. It's a phenomenal reality when people can say that of themselves. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And then verse 5. But you know that he, Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. What I just described to you as the, a possibility for every human being is an absolutely remarkable truth. Jesus came into this world to take sin away from us, to take away our rebellious nature, if you would, to take away our resistance of God, to take away our antagonism toward, toward his rule in our lives, his authority. He came into this world to forgive us all of our sin and to change us internally. How? By dying on a cross so that we might be made one with God again. So that we might have a relationship with God again as Adam and Eve were once created to know it. He came to change our hearts. How? Let's go back to some of those verses. For those who have been made blind to the truth, God would work by his spirit so that we would be able to see who God truly is. Do you know who God truly is? to see that he is a God of love and that he is a God of goodness and of mercy and of grace and of joy. To see our own need of salvation, see the, the need for something and somebody outside of ourselves to move within us and to transform us and to change us, to open our eyes to see what we could not see before. You know, this change takes us takes people from being hostile toward God to seeing God as a God of love so that rather than being hostile toward him, they want to love him back. Do you love God? Like, I mean, really. Do you love him? To take people who, are, who have chosen to live in rebellion against God, disbelieving God's word, to seeing that his law is not a threat in their lives taking people from running away and rejecting that law to being people who willingly and even eagerly submit to God's law in their lives because they have come to know that it is wise and that it is good and it is meant by God to be an incredible blessing to us. You see, this is all, my friends, the saving work of Jesus, counteracting the destructive work of the devil. Verse 9 says this. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Ongoing, persistent, habitual, unrepented sin. Just doesn't happen. Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Born of God. You know, this idea of being born again it was Jesus' terms. They just used different terms to speak to the same reality, but it's the reality when the Spirit of God comes into a person's life and He makes them new within. He changes us at a core and at a deep level. He changes us back, if you would, to what we were before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. 
so that we can then live out the reality of who we are in Christ. These people who are born into God's family, these people who have taken a step by having faith in Jesus, entered into a new life, it's like they were born into a new existence. <laughs> and those people, John says, they don't persistently, continuously, in an ongoing fashion, sin against God. Faith is evidenced by how they live. That's a consistent testimony of the Bible. Here's my point to you today. Well, here are some points. Number one, we are told that Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, right? Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says this. Angel, speaking to Joseph, she, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came to save us, to save us from something we could not save ourselves from because we were entrenched in this mentality that God is bad and his law is a threat to my life and I'm going to rebel against him and I'm not going to believe his word. You could not change that. I could not change that. Only the coming of Christ and his dying on a cross, which leads to our encountering his truth by his spirit, changes who we are so that rather than resisting God as an enemy and being hostile toward him, we open our arms in love and we embrace him. Have you done that? Are you still fighting him? Are you still running away? My contention is that most people, and I would say most Christian people included, have absolutely no idea what Jesus has saved them from. How lost we actually were before Jesus came and died on a cross, before Christ's spirit broke into our lives somehow in some way to open our eyes to see what we couldn't see before. I want to tell you, Jesus Christ came as an invading force on that day in Bethlehem. What do you mean, Chris? I mean this, that his mission was a mission of destruction to destroy the work of the devil in you and in me. The work is real and it is powerful and the only way we can be set free from it is by Christ himself, the one who died and the one who rose to new life and who has come to us by his Holy Spirit. You know, a great illustration of this, great illustration of this happened on June 6, 1944. Historians, what happened that day? June 6, 1944. One of the Brits among us knows, don't you? It was the day after continental Europe had been taken over by the Nazis, and I think we can agree there was an expression of evil at work in that day. It was the work of, the, of evil that was behind that whole movement. That, that day, June 6, 44, the Allied forces landed in, in Normandy on D-Day. The largest seaborne invasion in history, 156,000 soldiers attacked along an 80-kilometer uh, stretch of beach. Canada landed on Juneau Beach, the U.S. on Omaha and Utah Beach, obviously names given by them, the Brits on Gold and on Sword Beach, to take back land that had been lost. Time had to be right. The moon had to be in the right phase so that there was light to see. The tides had to be right so that the ships or boats could be brought in carrying the soldiers. It was an incredibly costly venture. 4,414 people died in those days. 10,000 casualties in total, huge suffering and sacrifice. My friends, these people succeeded in establishing a beachhead from which the battle could go forward. 
And within about a year, the war had been won. Now I want to tell you, when Jesus came, that little child in Bethlehem, don't forget it on the 25th of December this year. When Jesus came to Bethlehem, he came as an invading force. He came in weakness as a child, but he was the power of God coming into the world. Time had to be right. The Bible describes it as the fullness of time. It was perfect. God's design, God's way. It required great sacrifice. Jesus not only leaving the power and the glory and the beauty and the majesty of heaven to become a fetus in the womb and to lie in a manger and ultimately to go to a cross and die. But he was a conquering power, my friend who came to overcome and destroy the work of the enemy. He came to take back ground that had been lost. And from that day on, he and then his apostles and what followed them was the church of Christ has been at work taking back that ground, establishing a new kingdom, a new government, if you would. And that church will continue on until the day that evil is ultimately destroyed and the battle finally won. In that day... <clears throat> as was the case with Adam and Eve before they encountered evil and yielded to it. In that day, relationships will be made right again. In that day, violence and war will be no more. In that day, greed will be gone. In that day, poverty and injustice will be nothing but a memory. Sin and evil and death will be defeated. And this world will be made new. Here's how I want to start to wind things up today. I want to ask you, has the work of Jesus overcome the work of the devil in your life? Have you transitioned from being a child of the devil to becoming a child of God? That's a heavy question. I get it. <laughs> Let me put it a different way. Have you found movement in your life from living in persistent and ongoing, consistent sin sin having taken a hold of your life? Have you moved from that place where there's a hostility toward God, feeling that his law is nothing but a threat in your life and refusing to yield to his authority in your life? Have you come to a place where you recognize who God is and you see him and you understand that his law is a beautiful thing that brings life, not death? Have you come to a place where you're no longer hostile toward him and moving away from him? You recognize his love for you and you love him back and you're willing to submit your life fully and completely to the person of Jesus Christ that you might be used as part of his church to take back the land that is his. I want to tell you, my friends, honestly, there's no more important question that a, a minister of God's word can ask you then this question, have you been born again? I'm not talking about whether you, you go to church. Couldn't care less. Well, I could care less. But in this regard, I don't care because I don't think everybody who comes to church on a Sunday morning, even with regularity, is born again. There are people who are simply religious and they enjoy the activity and it somehow is meaningful for them. But have they been made, made new by the Spirit of God? And I don't care whether you've said a little prayer. Now, sometimes a little prayer where we confess our sin and invite Christ into our lives to be our Lord and our Savior is the means of expressing the faith which God has given to us. It's an expression of the salvation that we have found, and that can be an incredible thing, but not everybody who says a little prayer is born again because all it is is a little prayer. 
and nothing more. I want you to know that you are no longer a child of the devil, but that you have become a child of God. God longs for that. Jesus has come that you might become his for eternity. That you might know him and love him and serve him with your whole life. How do you know if you're the child of God versus the child of the devil? Simply you look at your life. That's the message of John here. Look at your life. And if we're, you know, experiencing that sort of resistance to God and hostility toward him and think of him as a threat to our life and our well-being, oh, my goodness. If you are there today and if you're recognizing something that's at work in you, hear this. God loves you. That's who God is. And if you doubt it, look at Bethlehem this coming season and see the infant lying in the crib and understand what God has done that he might get you back. I hope even today that you're beginning to have your eyes open to see that God doesn't want to harm you. He wants to bless you. He doesn't want you to, 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 to experience less of life. He wants you to experience more of life. He's not a threat to your existence. He is the one who can give you what you long for. And you can move from resisting to submitting to his law to actually embracing it and yielding your life to him fully and completely. If you have done that, you can have a confidence that you have moved from being a child of the devil to becoming a child of God. And I pray for every single person here that that's you. Now, could some people leave here today still expressing those characteristics? Hostility to God, enemy of God in my mind, resistant to his word. I'm not going to let him tell me how to live my life. He's only a threat to me. Yeah, you can. But I want to tell you, I want to tell you, Jesus Christ has come into the world for you. That you could enter into his presence and bow your head to him and say, Lord, I'm beginning to get it. I'm beginning to see who you are. I'm beginning to have my eyes open to recognize that you are a God of love. And that I have a need that is profound and real. And I pray today that you will forgive me of my sins and that you will overcome the work of the devil in my life and that you will set me free from the power of sin and that you will allow me as I choose to today, Lord, to yield fully, completely to you and to your will and to your word so that I might become part of that powerful force which is going to take back ground that has been lost to the enemy until the day you return and I see you with my own eyes. And as 1 John 3 says, till that day I become like you. I don't know what Christmas has meant to you over the course of your years. Some of you have a lot more than 60 under your belts, and some of you have a lot less. But I hope of nothing else, you've come to know through this story, through this reality of Jesus coming into this world as an infant, that God loves you, and he longs to have a relationship with you. And you have the opportunity, the option, if you would, to simply believe in this one named Jesus, not only in his coming, his incarnation, God becoming flesh, but in his death and in his resurrection, and that you come into his presence and just say, Lord, I get it. I see it. And I invite you into my life because from now on, I don't want to run away. I want to run toward. I want to be yours. I want to believe the things that you have said. I want to live my life according to that faith. 
I want to be saved from what I was before, that I might know you and your love. If that's you, oh, I just encourage you from the bottom of my heart, open your life to Christ. Ask him to forgive your sin. Make him the Lord as well as the Savior of your life. And then live in relationship with him in a way that God created you to know him. Do that now and through eternity with God. Let Christmas this year be about recognizing what God has done in Jesus for you. Let's pray. Lord, one of the most amazing things that can happen in a human life is that we can be born again. That by the work of your Holy Spirit in us, that we are changed at the deep and core level of our lives so that we see and we understand and we move away from hostility to acceptance and to love, move away from rebelling against what you have spoken into yielding our lives, submitting our lives willingly and freely and gladly to what you have spoken. God, I just want to pray for those people here today who have yet to take that step that you, by your Spirit, will work in their lives until they choose this for themselves. Lord, give them that moment in your presence where they just say yes to you, where they choose to turn around, having run from you all of their lives, and run into your arms, arms of grace and of forgiveness and of love, and yes, of joy. Holy God, do what only you can do in setting people free and in destroying the work of the devil. God, you're a remarkable God. How and why you would come to this earth, God, we'll never grasp that other than the fact that we know today that you love us and you have a better plan for us and you're willing to make us new. Do your work in us, we pray call us to yourself God destroy the work of the devil in our lives as we pray in Jesus name Amen this morning we're going to share in communion some people might ask why would you spend time reflecting on the death